and welcome to Sonic Talk, episode number 420, I think we'll call it 429 because there wasn't really a 28, but just to keep it in some kind of numerical, well, I'm going to call it 429, so let's just say that. Uh, I want to say thank you very much to our show sponsors. Obviously, we've got Isotope, who uh, we'll be hearing from later. They're giving away a copy of Ozone 7, you'll be pleased to know. And also to UVI Falcon, creative hybrid instruments from UVI. That was quite slick, actually. I've been rehearsing that because uh, God knows I should be able to get it right. Let's join our guests. I mean, this week we've got a slight special. We've got a sort of panel who have all been involved in the same project, and I'll introduce them, and then maybe we can guess what it is. Um, we'll start with Mr. David Spears at G4 Software right over there. Uh, Dave in his synth cave. There's a rhyme in there. Maybe a limerick could come out of it. Oh, Dave, oh, Dave. No, no, that's there. Was it? There was a... No, never mind. I, I felt confident going into that. Dave, can I hear what you're saying? No, you're muted. So I can't hear you. I'm, oh, I just did a Rich Hilton, didn't I? Yeah, somebody take a drink somewhere. Hey. Oh, well, perhaps not, eh, Dave? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> drink of water. So Dave Spears, G4 Software, and also producer of uh, a movie which we're going to be talking about as well, um, which is the... Um, Bright Sparks synth documentary mood slash movie, which is coinciding with uh, an album that's also from iMonster. And I will now introduce the iMonster part of the panel, Dean Honer from iMonster. How are you, Dean? How? How? I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. Dean, of course, uh, has been on the show before. We, we had you on with the uh, eccentric Reese. I, I cannot pronounce that. Can you say it for me? Ex- Ex- eccentronic. Eccentronic. Research. Research. Council. Council. That's right. Uh, we had you on before and uh, very pleased that you're from your uh, your secret location in the north of England somewhere. Um, yeah, in my bunker. Your bunker. Anyway, Dean, mm-hmm. pleased to have you aboard. We're going to be talking to you a little bit about uh, the project that you've just been working on. We've also got Mr. Mark Doty from the Bob Moog Foundation. We haven't had him for a while. I know Mark's been quite busy, right? Yes, yes. There is a project i've been working on that has taken much of my daytime for which which is what this is for me uh but uh i think uh yeah. dave kind of uh, got me off today so excellent awesome well i'm gonna st- jump right in because basically today is the day um, you may have seen a few uh teasers uh what's it all about bright sparks and uh it's been all been very mysterious and that but now i can actually play the trailer so we'll play it and then we can discuss here we go Those loved it. Since I knew what one was, what what's that weird sound? Those great records. So well, we, we had the idea of making an album that looked not just at the instruments, but kind of paid tribute to some of these. Well, they're all men, aren't they? Incredible some cleverness at design. The best in electronic music engineer that's ever been. He was persuaded to build 100 of these and see if they would sell. How about I make something to compete with Moog, but it will stay in tune. Yeah, I, he's a very interesting individual also. You know, he's a very, very unique character, very stubborn. You know, he's a genius. He's a very brilliant guy. He has wacky ideas. He did steal those chamberings. He brought them to England without Harry's permission. Same thing. 
Awesome. Right. So for those of you perhaps still wondering what's going on there, um, basically the Bright Sparks project is over to you, Dave Spears. (laughs) (laughs) You're Uh muted. That's another drink. Oh, God. (laughs) Terrible. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of the three of us and a load of people, really. It's uh, I guess Dean should really start because it all stems from an album. I mean, been a huge fan of the i monster guys for years daydreaming blue and the blue rat and whatnot and that never odd or even album was kind of never far from the turntable and actually i've spoken to a lot of people over the years because i've kind of been going oh you should check these guys out they're brilliant and so many people come back from really obscure places going oh yeah yeah i dj their stuff or i used to dj their stuff and whatnot and we've become friends with dean and jared over the years and then when they announced this concept album uh we they asked us if we wanted to be involved this is chris and myself and it took several kind of twists and turns and ultimately it's ended up with an album that's then reinforced with this documentary and yeah i mean dean should really talk a little bit about the album ah okay over to you dean so dean um this it's it's a concept album it sounds very prog should be a should be a kind of well, gate from <laughs> It is gatefold, gatefold <laughs> vinyl when it comes out. Um, prog, yeah, we, we like concepts. We like to have something to hang the music around, I think. And so the idea for Bright Sparks kind of came from, can you see that? From yeah. this, really. Analog um, days. Yeah. By Mr. Pinch and Mr. Choco. Um, and I thought it was a great read and what I found interesting about it as well as talking about the instruments it was talking about the adventures and struggles of the the inventors and the companies that made the instruments um, and I, I saw a similarity between what we do making music in our little bunker twiddling with knobs making sounds and having a good having lots of fun and then actually passing it over to someone that knows how to conduct business in some way. And sometimes we made the wrong decisions and things didn't work out. And I think uh, the creative people like Moog and Arp and Freeman, you know, they, they, run in, they run into the same difficulties as us. They start off with very good intentions. And then... Um, Someone spoils it somehow <laughs> in some way, you know, to, to lesser, to greater or lesser degrees, depending on the story. But we, we, we just like stories about the people behind the, invent, behind the instruments. And so we chose, we chose eight different inventors or companies and four turned out to be com- companies or people from the States. 
and four turned out to be British. So it's quite a nice A side and B side to a vinyl album. Um, we chose Moog, Buchla, uh Arp, and Chamberlain. And then there was Mellotron, uh, EMS, Electronic Dream Plant, and Freeman on the British side. And so we tried to make, we tried to write songs that gave an impression or gave the taste of the stories of these people. And we tried to use as many of the original instruments as we could in doing that, which was really good fun. It sounds like quite a challenge. I mean, were you able to uh, create, I mean, were you, were you attempting to kind of use the, the instruments as the main feature on each of those, or was it more about the sound world itself? Um, yeah, as I say, we like to sort of give ourselves some kind of restrictions. So, like with the Moog, we, endeav- we endeavoured to just use kind of Moog instruments predominantly. You know, obviously, we, not everything on there is from Moog, and we might use a string synth or something on the Moog. But predominantly, like we use like the Mini Moog, and I've got an Opus 3 as well, and we went to... Uh, Memtunes, Benji's studio, who's got an amazing collection of like 60s modulars like Moogs and Buchlers. And we spent a day there with uh, Chris and Dave uh, recording loads of parts using his machines as well. So, yeah, it was, it was about using as many of the original instruments as possible and um, trying to give each track a flavour of, of, of that company. That sounds incredibly. Sonically. It sounds incredibly challenging to be. You know, I mean, limit as we we discussed quite a lot on this show. Creative limitations are uh, can be very very useful, obviously. Uh, but the, at the same time, having a framework to hang things on is also incredibly useful. But I mean, the the, the way that you've done it as well. I mean, I've, I haven't heard the whole album because the album, uh, uh, the, the the film and the I saw the film last night. I haven't had a chance to listen to the album today, but uh, I'm guessing that. Um, the whole kind of what I have heard snippets are also has a sort of authenticity, a sort of it doesn't sound like sort of modern digital kind of uh, production. It's got a nice warmth to it as well, which I think is really important when you're tackling this kind of subject, right? Yeah, yeah. We chose um, so with something like Alan Perlman and Arp. It kind of we always we thought it was quite a spacey thing with art because of like the R2-D2 sounds for Star Wars from the 2600 and then there was the Close yeah. Encounters connection and so we did a kind of spacey space disco track for that <laughs> that seemed to fit that seemed to work in our in our tiny brains that that's what worked and the Moog one was it was actually a lot more convoluted and we kind of went through like the, the history of Moog music almost from kind of Wendy Carlos-y st- sounding bits at the intro into like a kind of more modern driven thing um but yeah we just kind of i don't know it just just led us really we followed our noses you know yeah yeah well uh, that's often the best way with these things and having that sort of framework will really make so dave um in terms of the accompanying film as well there's a lot of uh great back i mean you know the, it, it's very much the sort of human stories behind a lot of this thing I saw, we saw the film last night in the uh, swanky swanky private screening at the hotel in uh, reading which was great fun thank you very much for inviting us and 
what was really clear is you know the personalities of the people so you, you actually got alan perlman on camera which i think is a feat in itself and these guys are getting on a bit right yeah and that's one of the things what happened was uh obviously we were conversing with dean and jared during the writing process although you know obviously the the recording stuff was down to them but we would loan them certain bits of gear like the 2600 and stuff and there was just this moment where dean uh, I mean, people know I do these kind of YouTube things uh, with Mini Moog and the Ape Voice and stuff like that. And Dean uh, just kind of casually said, I don't suppose you do a little film to accompany the album. And I was just immediately reminded of a situation where I'd taken the back of Chris's and mine Mini Moog off to take to Nam in order to get Bob to sign it many years ago. And needless to say, I forgot it on the way to the airport and cursed and... Chris rolled his eyes and kind of went, well, he'll be there at Frankfurt. And, of course, he wasn't. And, you know, we know that the industry lost a kind of a real pioneer and a gent as well. You know, I was really lucky enough to have met him on several occasions and spoken to him in, you know, what I consider to be great depth. And it suddenly kind of hit me when Dean mentioned this, is that actually we do have a very finite opportunity. You know, you kind of assume that people like Bob will be around forever and, I just kind of asked Chris, you know, can I, can I just, can we, can we run with this? And I think the first person we got was Ken Freeman. Uh, he came here. I'd had a connection with him because I'd kind of helped on the War of the Worlds tour uh, years ago, you know, the Jeff Wayne thing. And Ken did the original sounds uh, and actually played on the War of the Worlds album. And he's responsible for like Casualty and Holby City and all sorts of stuff, like stuff from mine and Chris's childhood. So he agreed to come. And we filmed him and we just kind of didn't stop going wow for about an hour after he left. Because the story, and whilst there is, I mean, Mark Vale's book, I mean, Analog Days is an amazing book. Mark Vale's synthesizers book for me is a kind of real Bible. But it's in text format and you don't get a handle on the character. You know, it, when you're sitting in the same room as these people and they're recounting these stories, it is quite mind-blowing. So... That just kind of led to another, which I think the second person I filmed was Alessandro Cortini. I tried to get Don Buckler, but he was ill uh, during the period where we were filming or trying to, you know, make time. And obviously he's located on the West Coast and, you know, this started on a very shoestring budget. It kind of mushroomed a bit towards, uh, towards the end because as we got caught up in it, it was like, oh, can we go here? And after a lot of trying to contact Alan Perlman... Uh, in the end, Mark Vale put me in touch with him and we spoke on the phone. And I, I, I mean, I just kind of went, I have to say, I'm a real fanboy and I'm probably just going to go blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he was really humble and really gracious. And uh, his description of himself was he was the man behind the curtain in The Wizard of Oz. And after a few conversations, he agreed to talk to us. And to the best of my knowledge, it's the first time he's done that. So that was a moment where we got on a plane. Now, during this, obviously, I was, we were conversing with Dean and Jared, uh, iMonster, and Mark, who's a kind of kindred spirit in the whole analog historian vibe, because this idea of paying homage to these people, it just kind of hit us. So Mark and I were kind of constantly, I was firing things at Mark going, so what about this and what about this? And, oh, we've got this opportunity to do this. So the whole thing really whipped up. And it was, yeah, it was quite something, really, really quite something. 
Excellent. And Mark, of course, your role as a, a an archivist in the and a historian part of the uh, the Bombing Foundation obviously put you in good stead for kind of digging out the facts and, and kind of verifying a bunch of stuff. And the thing that's really interesting, I mean, is that there are some great characters in the stories. That are, you know, it's not just a bunch of old duffers talking about, you know, resistors and stuff it's it there's loads of really funny and interesting kind of backstory and some of those are, are fantastic and i have to say that alan pullman is a very funny bloke and uh, there's there's that whole thing isn't there where he sort of makes a thing of the fact that uh, i just wanted to make a synthesizer that stayed in tune because obviously with the early moogs that was a problem stability of oscillators because obviously bob kind of invented the notion of voltage controlled oscillators but stability was the difficulty and alan kind of figured that he'd got a better way of of making that stable and there was always this little bit of rivalry which is awesome yeah it's really it's really interesting to hear it from alan's side uh because well i mean so many of us you know uh like everyone here uh, vintage synthesizer mark vale's book uh and uh analog days are both Bibles for me as well. And there is just such a tremendous, uh, there's just such a tremendous lack of information. Like a lot of us, including me at some point, we're like, is Alan R. Perlman still alive? No one's heard from him from you for years. And so to actually have this resource to actually be able to hear Alan describe his, uh, perspective, and certainly knowing what I do about Bob from the Bob Moog Foundation, it's just it's it's just a really fascinating, incredible resource to be able to get these different perspectives uh, about this history that we still don't know much about. The history, the modern history of synthesizers, is essentially written uh, by uh, commercials and product releases and people's interpretations of product releases. We don't have the kind of historical document that Dave has just made uh, that really portrays the actual history of these modern synthesizer devices. It's just fascinating. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And there's some great stories in there. I know, Dean, did you, when you were working in, on, the, on the song parts, because there, there are vocals in us, it's not a purely instrumental album at all. Mm-hmm. Were, you, were you trying to tell the story through that as well? Or was it more kind of just to interweave through the themes of the documentary, the film? Um, each song's different, really. I mean, with the um, Chamberlain and Mellotron songs, we kind of made a three-part thing. And so there's a whole story about Harry Chamberlain inventing the machine, how he came to invent it, and then having a couple of his machines stolen and taken over to England by a guy called Bill Franson, who was his window cleaner. And then Bill Franson in England then getting in touch with the Bradley brothers and getting them to make a new machine, which turned out to be the Mellotron. So some of the stories are very interesting in themselves. But but with like the Buchler track, it was more about... uh, getting a flavour of the times of the West Coast from the 60s and kind of the, the acid test and things like that, really. So it was a bit more impressionistic, I think, oh, on some I see tracks. What you mean, yeah. So rather, did... than say it's, rather than saying Don Buchler was born here and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, and what, what he did. And so sometimes, yeah, if the story was strong enough, then we kind of put bits of that in. But if not, it was more about giving an impression of who the people and the times and where they were from and, you know, and their stories, really. 
And there are some great stories. I mean, the, the, and brilliant raconteurs as well. I mean, there's Zenovia stuff, who's the guy from EMS, and also uh, Ken Freeman's story is awesome. It's really, really good. I, I, I urge you to download the movie you know, if even if it's for just one thing, you know that that's one that's well. They're all each individual section has a uh, the, dean. So did I mean? Presumably, you didn't own all of these synthesizers. So I mean, particularly with like say the Buchla stuff, which is uh, um, is quite difficult if you're from an uh, 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 an East Coast kind of background uh, of synthesis to kind of get involved in. Did you find that you you had to spend quite a lot of time with them and just to sort of find out what the essence of them were so you could use them on the tracks or was it just more experimental than that it, it was more experimental i mean the only the only bookler we got hold of for that track was benji's um i think he's a was it bookler 100 dave is it yeah 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 which is one of the very very early or maybe the first ones that he built it still had kind of um uh, San Francisco tape center badges on it and things like that. Is that the one with the five-step um, sequencer? It it might have had. Yeah, it's got it had like a weird touchpad keyboard. Um, I don't know if it was like pressure sensitive or capacitance, but we just we just experimented that and recorded a load of it, and then took that back to our studio and played around with that. And that, but that became the basis of the track, and then we built over that with other machines. But. Um, yeah, uh, the with the uh, ARP stuff, we we, made, we used Benji's ARP two thousand five hundred, and that's I, I didn't understand that machine at all. So we were just once again we were just twiddling things and recording the noises that came out, and then took them back. And Dave lent us his ARP two thousand six hundred, which was great. And Dave even played a little bit of ARP Odyssey on one of the tracks on the ARP track. Guest session. A load of Arp Odyssey sounds. Yeah, he didn't get paid for it, but, you know, <laughs> it's very good. It's brilliant. So, yeah. It's brilliant the way that it the way that it comes together like that, and and also the the thing that really tied me. Well, going back to the Ken Freeman story, the thing that he invented he invented it because he was in a covers band that were trying to play top ten hits every week. So that that's it came from a creative necessity and the brilliant. I, I I'm not giving too much away if I tell a little bit of the story. The, the, he he was trying to get the sound of the string sounds because everybody had strings on their records in those days and all he had was a clavioline and a tape echo. Was it a tape echo? I think it was a... Yeah, a copycat. A copycat. So he figured out that if he wobbled the tape around a bit, it, the string sounded a bit more... Uh, well, the, 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 the kind of basic tone that came out of the clavioline, which is very basic, sounded a bit more interesting and more modulating. And the way that then playing arpeggiators into it, the arpeggios of chords meant that it sounded like... just, And then made it just because he wanted that sound. And that, that's just sort of brilliant because it comes from a completely non-commercial point of view. And that seemed to be a kind of common theme in many ways. It's like, I wonder if we can do this. Although I guess... Um, Mark, that a lot of this came out of Bob's early work because I mean, they, once that became obviously seen as popular and everybody wanted a piece of the action as well, there has to be some element of commerciality behind some of these stories, I guess. Yeah, certainly, Bob and his effort to give musicians. I mean, okay, you start off with Bob's inspiration with Herb Deutsch, and. He's, he was directly inspired by a musician who was really interested in creating uh, this compact, self-contained electronic music studio. And then you have, you know, obviously what Wendy Carlos did with it, and it just exploded. And the commerciality of that uh, made it 
so that, you know, the general public becomes aware of what these people who are really creatively using musical instruments to realize their vision or designing musical instruments to suit a need of musicians and artists. And I think, you know, everything great comes from that. And in every single one of these instances of uh, these various people, that's basically you have a seed that started with an artistic concept. And then, you know, obviously the commercial value came secondary to that. Yeah, and the, uh, the, the thing I didn't really know about how closely entwined Herb Deutsch was with the kind of the creating of, of the not only the mini mood, but also just the idea of sticking a keyboard <laughs> on one of these things so musicians could use it. Because before then, it was very much in the sort of same mold as the kind of the West Coast kind of synthesis, which was it was more uh, almost more scientific and boffin like. I don't know. Did, did, did you do the interview with uh, Herb, Dave? No, I didn't. Uh, it, actually, we had a couple of really, because, like I say, it's all really started on a shoestring budget and then kind of escalated. Uh, but we had a, so there were geographic issues in terms of, you know, getting to interview certain people. I had a couple of bits of really amazing luck. First of all, uh, I have a great friend who's a photographer in New York, a guy called James Barham, who was there last night, actually. He'd only flown over yesterday. Not specifically for last night, I hasten to add. But we were at school together and stuff. He was one of those guys at school, you know, no matter what he did, he was always brilliant at I think I'll, play, I'll, I'll learn to play drums. Oh, he's amazing. I'll draw. He's amazing. And he turned into this amazing photographer. Uh, so we asked him if he would go and interview Herb. And because he's got the eye... Actually, that was the most expensive camera on the entire shoot. I think he rented a C300, and we were like, oh, God, now you've really set the benchmark kind of really high. Uh, so, yeah, he interviewed Herb, and that was, I mean, Herb's just, Herb's story's amazing, and he is so eloquent. I mean, I did very little editing with Herb because the story he tells, I mean, he, he's told it publicly a few times, but it just flows so beautifully. And then the second bit of really good luck we had was with Mark, obviously working for the foundation, because in the absence of Bob, really the dream team was Herb and Michelle. And Mark, because obviously Mark's got all this, you know, this historic angle to it, we were able to bounce ideas. So Mark ended up filming Michelle, which again was amazing. Uh, and then combining those two with people like Daniel Miller, who used the, you know, who uses the modular, and the Mini Moog, and a million other synths. I hasten to add, uh, and people like Will Gregory and Adrian Utley and stuff like that. So it's a long doc. I mean, the whole documentary is over two hours long. But I had a real. I'm such a nerd about these things. So it was impossible really for me to edit. And because certainly the Moog section just flowed so well, I just felt I, I had a TV guy come and have a look at it with a view to maybe getting it on Sky Arts. And he was like, oh, the way TV works is you have to cut this and hack that. And then you have to do the coming next to the adverts. And then you have to do a recap immediately. And, and I just kind of looked at him and went, that's not the film that I can make. Maybe after the event, I could hand it over to you and you could axe it. But for me, and honestly, because I spent so long editing yeah. this and reviewing the footage, I feel like I felt like I really got to know these people. And it just felt kind of, it felt wrong cutting stuff out. And there's a brilliant bit where Herb talks about the one volt per octave. You know, they couldn't get 
the synth to stay in it tune. It sounded like that was decide. just an arbitrary. They went, I know, what about one volt per octave? It almost seemed like it was completely un... It's like, that'll do, rather than, you know, scientifically kind of considered, which I think is brilliant, almost. Happy accident. It was amazing, because for me, I'm not an engineer, so the idea that, you know, you have one volt at this octave and two volt at this octave, and then you put one twelfth of a volt resistors between each, and then you end up with what? You know, Bart called equal-tempered, uh, or well-tempered. I just kind of went, wow, that just makes so much sense to me. And so I would send that to, say, somebody like Kent Spong and go, is this kind of too nerdy? But then that's what we are. And he came back. Actually, Kent was amazing because he came back and said, I mean, bear in mind that Kent repairs stuff all the time. He came back and said, actually, I played it to my girlfriend. And she suddenly went, I get it now. I get that. So for me, and yeah, so yeah, that's why I couldn't really axe cut too much. I mean, we do have a lot of footage in the, you know, uh, that was consigned to the cutting room floor, which at some point I'd love to put up on the website in its entirety. But at the minute, you know, as a piece, it kind of came together really well. But it is long, as you well know from last night. Well, you very kindly did provide a, uh, a, an interval, which uh, meant there was a bit of a queue at the loo, but that's fine. And uh, we had to, <laughs> and also the opportunity to have another drink or two, uh, which I understand was, uh, was just the beginning for many, uh, many of the attendees. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, so uh, mm-hmm. the one, what happens next with this? So th- this, is, this is going out as an iMonster album. Mm-hmm. So you're doing yep. are you you're doing a, a sort of separate album release as well. We are, yeah. So the initial period, um, it's the film and the album combined as a download package you can buy, which is out now. And then we're releasing uh, digital uh, CD and vinyl in around February, I think. So the the, the kind of the release from our side of things is really kind of we're building up to February for the music side. But if you want to at the moment, you can download the album That's with it. the film. Bright Sparks dot movie package. Yeah, That's right. I'll just type that in the chat room so that uh, um, us, uh, they can instantly go off and uh, I better spell it right, though. That's I suppose um, dot movie. Yeah. That sounds an interesting. So, are you gonna? Uh, I mean, because you do play live as well. Are you can you see foresee the p- p- possibility of trying to recreate some of this live? Or what do you think are the possibilities of that? Uh, I don't know. I'd like to do something live, and I wouldn't like to um, do it with laptops. I'd like to use. <laughs> do you know what I mean? To kind of defeat the object. So I don't know. We're, we're going to talk about it. Maybe we'll. We'll, we'll try and get something together. Obviously, it, we won't be able to drag all of Dave's gear and a Chamberlain and stuff like that out. But, <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? 300, 300 kilograms of a uh, death trap. That was hilarious, um, that that story, wasn't it? The uh, About the, the Chamberlain, about how uh, it wasn't built really to be moved and they didn't have a chassis. So you just every time you moved it, it stopped working, basically. That was brilliant. I, and Dave, I believe you've actually uh, yeah. you've actually moved one of those, right? <laughs> Yeah, that was really funny. We bought one. We bought the full manual M4 in America f- several years ago, and it was shipped back from LA. And uh, yeah, it arrived on a truck, and they offloaded it and kind of went, "See ya." So Chris and I were trying to wrestle it into our room, and there was just this moment where we looked at each other and just went, 
I'm too old for this because <laughs> it is really, really heavy. And amazingly, the one that we own used to belong to Three Dog Night and they actually toured with it. There is some footage <laughs> on YouTube of them playing it live. And because it's all wood, you know, all the keys are wooden and stuff, you can imagine in a kind of humid environment or in the sun or whatever, each of the felt pads that makes the contact with the tape heads and, and the motor, you know, in order to drag it across the capstan, just would need constant readjustment. So yeah, I mean, I just, that M4 is a is a is just a piece of madness, really. I can't imagine what it would be like having to work for the guy. You probably work for the guy, and then he got the M4, uh, and then he got the Chamberlain, and then you had. It's like, do I stay in the job or do I? I'm not sure. I'm not sure because <laughs> I mean, literally, I mean, I'm moving that kind of stuff around. As uh, but there, there's all sorts of brilliant stories like that uh, that springs to mind of Daniel Miller when he because he bought the he was telling the story about when. Uh, in the I think it was the early 80s when basically digital was everything you know and that's what people were doing a lot of analog stuff was being discarded and he got the opportunity to buy uh, an EMS uh, oh god I can never remember what it is it uh, 100 Cynthia 100 which is the massive thing that looks like basically the side of a laboratory and uh, they went he had to pick it up so he went and picked it up but the bloke whose van it was borrowed it off his dad and had to and they and they couldn't fit it in anywhere so they were driving around London trying to find somewhere to drop this thing off <laughs> while they figured out what they were going to do with it I mean the movie is full of these great kind of stories I mean there's definitely all these kind of bit. I don't know Mark have you got a favourite is there a sort of favourite kind of moment for you in this I, I know we're talking about this kind of rather abstractly because most of our listeners will not have downloaded this yet but hopefully they will get a chance to watch this well, I do want to say the thing about Herb, um, I know Herb and I've seen Herb tell uh, a variety of stories in a number of settings over the years. And this is the most concise because he does, he, he tells a lot of stories in a lot of ways. But this is the most concise and direct description I've ever seen. Uh, Michelle and I were talking about it and it is our favorite of uh, Herb's telling of the story. It's really fantastic. So I really enjoy that. And of course, I love Michelle's part. But for me, I have to say, it was really exciting to hear Alan R. Perlman tell the story from his perspective and to hear Dennis Collins' perspective as well, because I know a lot of people don't know who Dennis Collin was. Um, and I was contacted by his daughters in 2009 and they're like, Hey, uh, wouldn't you like to interview Dennis Collin? And I'm like, who's Dennis Collin? And I'm just ashamed of that now because he was an important part of everything that happened. Uh, well, not everything, but uh, the important things that happened at ARP. So for me that I'm just, when I watch that part, I'm just in rapt attention because I'm learning a whole bunch of stuff that nobody knows. Nobody knows this. And so, you know, when I was first talking to Dave about these interviews, I'm like, like ridiculous. I'm like, oh my God, oh, this is amazing. Yeah, this is going to be the best thing ever because we don't know these stories. We don't know these. And for people like me who've been an obsessive synth history nerd for my whole life, this is like gold. It's, it's amazing. Oh, it's so, fantastic. Yeah, I, no, I agree. I agree. And there, there are some, I really like the sort of little bit of needle that uh, Alan gets in about the uh, oscillators of the tuning, because I think when there's another part of the story where um, ARP have been building stuff for a little while and Bob showed up one day and just said, 
I hope you're not ripping off any of my designs. And Alan was going, he was very surly. Oh, right. You're the guy, you're the guy, um, you're the guy who's, oh, no, I just wanted to make something that was in tune, I think he said, which was just, again, a nice little, so but they ended up the best of friends as well. I know, Dave, what about you? Have you got a favourite kind of uh, moment from the movie? I don't know. I don't know. It's probably hard to ask. What I found, what I found really fascinating and obviously, yeah, the Dennis Collin thing was quite a revelation and that was, that was, I mean, that was when Chris and I jumped on a plane to go and interview Alan and we went the next day to film Dennis and unfortunately he died a couple of weeks ago. So, uh, that was sad. So that was amazing to get his input for that moment in time. It was quite, 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 quite a freaky experience for us because he lived sort of in the middle of nowhere in New Hampshire. So we drove from Boston up to New Hampshire and we got lost and the directions we had were kind of a little bit confusing for us. It's interesting when Americans talk about the boonies, I thought that was a real place. So I was like, where exactly is the boonies? Is it near such and such? And they were like, no, 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 no. It's in the middle of nowhere. And we turn up in this little town and... It's literally like tumbleweed and we go into this, the only place that's open and uh, we ask, do you know where this is? And they kind of give us directions and we come out and there's still no one around and it's starting to get dark. And the main street's called Elm Street. <laughs> and they took us <laughs> and, the, and the journey to Dennis's house kind of took us along this uh, lake that looked just like out Friday the 13th and was called Crystal Lake Drive. So the whole time I'm saying to Chris, please tell me we've got a full tank of gas because if there's a puncture going to happen in this car, you're the one getting out and whatnot. And he's like jabbing the brakes occasionally trying to freak me out. No, it was really, really fascinating. What I loved about the Alan... Uh, I mean, there's just so much for me. The, the Moog thing is really... It's really special because you have Herb's amazing input from the very, very early days. And then you've got this very personal uh, approach from Michelle, because Michelle is Bob's daughter, and I just love the way those two things work. And also, one of the things I really loved about Alan was, you know, yeah, of course. I mean, he was 89 when we filmed him. So that was a, a remarkable thing. Also, both his father and his grandfather had died in their 40s from heart conditions. And Alan, being the amazing individual that he was, got to like 40 and thought, right, I need to do something about this. So he started running marathons and cycling races and stuff like that. And here he is at 89, absolutely still, you know, mentally alert, agile. I mean, that just comes across in the film. But what I loved about it was there's this arc, this kind of trajectory where in the early days where these guys are kind of, you know, they are competitors effectively. And there is the story about, you know, Bob turning up and not being particularly happy. And we all know about the, you know, the Moog ladder filter infringement issue and whatnot. And what I loved about it was that Alan said, but after a while we became really good friends. And he was very kind. He said very good things about the 2600. And he was a very modest and... Uh, he was a genius. That's what he said. He was a genius. And that's what I love. So you'll find that you're talking to these people at a certain time in their lives where they've been able to put all of that kind of competitiveness and they've made sense of their lives and everything's put into perspective. So for me, that was a real, real joy. I think the most amazing thing, that the thread that runs throughout the entire movie is very few of these people, if any, did it for the money. And sometimes the way of getting people to open up, because don't forget, you know, particularly with somebody like Alan, let's say, you've got these two 50-year-old guys turning up at a house of, you know, people bordering on 90, him and his wife, 
and they don't know me, you know, so they're quite reticent at first. And one of the things that always opened up conversation was when you draw the analogy, like Dean said, between great artists and great engineers. Now, we know this because some of our software engineers, I, re I regard them as artists. But with numbers and there's no abstract nonsense allowed, it has to be very definite stuff. And really what they're doing is imagining this stuff, you know, that's in their heads and bringing it to life. And when I mentioned that to Alan, he then pointed around the room and it turns out both him and his wife are artists. So that would then just open up this dialogue and you could feel, you know, people would start to relax. Also knowing stuff about the story. And this was again great because Dean and I and Mark had discussed, you know, various facets of what we knew about these people's lives. So actually when you go in and you know as much of the story as you can, I think people just kind of go, oh, okay, he is genuinely interested. He's not just doing this because it's an opportunity or something like that. So for me, I mean, I'll be really honest, the whole thing just felt like a calling for me. And right. I just said to Chris, you know, Chris has been amazing in supporting it and dealing with it. And, you know, and I have to say, this is not a GeForce yeah, project. no, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a something separate, project. right? It's a very separate entity because, you know, these guys' stories transcend any of what we do and any of what anybody else does. This is about, and actually when I sent, I sent uh, what I hoped would be the finished version to a few people, including Vince Clark. And when Vin Vince Clark actually came back and said, you know, he said, Dave, to be honest, I was skeptical at first. I thought, oh, not another bloody analog tribute. He said, but I found myself fascinated with the human and engrossed with the human stories behind these instruments that have inspired my life. And that for me was the absolute key that encapsulated it all. It, it's all about the human stories. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, Dino, I'm going to come and ask you in a moment what your favourite, uh, perhaps, uh, part of the project is. But first, before that, uh, I want to say thank you to our sponsors, obviously. Isotope, of course. Ozone 7. Produce rich, full, professional-sounding tracks with the critically acclaimed mastering tools in Ozone and Ozone Advanced. Now, the latest Isotope innovations in Ozone 7 bring modern and vintage processing to the forefront of the music production experience. Updated for Ozone 7, Ozone's highly regarded maximizer features a brand new frequency-specific IRC4 algorithm that delivers transparent mixes with less pumping and distortion. Use it to smooth out an unwieldy mix or tame the kick drum peaks without affecting the vocals. The Dynamic EQ, now in both the advanced and standard versions of Ozone, lives and breathes with your audio, giving you more effective control over your sound without coloring your entire mix. Harness the precision of an equalizer and the musical ballistics of a compressor in one integrated processor. So I want to say thank you to Isotope. I don't play the whole clip there because I know we've got a lot of extra stuff to talk to. If you want to try Ozone 7, uh, go to isotope.com forward slash Ozone. You'll be able to uh, grab a download and a 10-day free demo there. Uh, also, we've got a competition. Uh, obviously, there was no show last week, so we have a winner from uh, this week, which is around for a couple of weeks. So I want to say the winner of Ozone 7 from last week is a chap called Paul Brown. And on Twitter, his handle is at Paul Brown Sound. And 
uh, he tweeted the hashtag MixDoctor and the hashtag Ozone7 to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. And he is now the proud winner. Uh, if he wants to get in touch, Paul, um, then the Isotope Ferry will deposit Ozone7 for you. Um, and also, we've got um, another copy to give away thanks to ozone uh thanks to isotope uh you can win ozone ozone seven uh we want to see the hashtag super tweak that's one word and the hashtag ozone seven you tweet those to at sonic state and at isotope inc uh you will be entered automatically for the winner uh, for the competition this week and we'll pick a winner next week thank you very much to ozone for ozone isis because they got zeds in them isotope for their continued sponsor of the show has been great so and um, back to you then um dean and in fact you do a lot mm-hmm. of mastering don't you as well as part of uh, part of your many string bows and uh, yeah I, quite, I, quite a bit excellent so i'd imagine something like that might be quite useful but i won't sully your uh, your opinion i won't put you on the spot so what was for you in the project what was your um what were kind of the, the highlight or highlights for you um it's, it's really really difficult to say um but if i, if I chose chose one i one of my favourite synths is the uh, EMS synthy because it's kind of very unpredictable and pretty mad. It's got a definite character all of its own, you know. And it was really good to see Peter Zanoffiev talking because it's felt like it's that's kind of his character in the synth. He's like this very, very British guy, but he's obviously he's kind of mad as a box of frogs. Yeah, you slightly know? bonkers, yeah. It's, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, I love the quote he... Uh, the thing he said about how he was so amazed, like because he he bought a computer in the sixties and it was it cost as much as a house. It was like sixty thousand pounds or thirty thousand pounds or something, and it had four um, k of storage, four kilobytes of storage. And he was saying, "Now I've got this new computer. It's two hundred terabytes." I often lay in bed wondering what the number would be. I'm- he gets 200 terabytes and he's, he goes he's many many millions many millions oh sorry you broke <laughs> up I, I just I just loved his British eccentricity and the fact that he's still making music yeah no that was great well he and said still, he said he came back sounds. he came back to it didn't he sorry you broke up a little bit there I'll just recap because he he did that uh, he, he'd stopped for like 30 years and then he started composing again and he was obviously using modern computer systems and he said when he can't sleep, he, he tries to figure out how many 4Ks there are in 20 tel- 200 terabytes of storage. That's a great story. And it's just another example of all these kind of little anecdotes and tales that impart the personality of these people. But the other thing that's very common amongst them is this sort of notion that either they themselves or some of the engineers that they worked with were they considered to be kind of geniuses, you know, and uh, to, not to put too tr- strong a word on it, and that those people who were so innovative, who were more from an engineering background, and that's quite interesting to me as well, because it, within music, genius is, is, is a different, has a different connotation. It sort of doesn't necessarily mean complex, it, it might mean complexity or difficulty, whereas in engineering, it really can mean figuring out these kind of very thorny concepts and figuring that kind of stuff out i know mark whether you uh, do you think there are many of these kind of guys around anymore because obviously with the amount of knowledge there is available via the internet or anything there are so many fewer very unique trains of thoughts well and this is a thing i was uh talking to michelle about how uh listening to peter sanofi talk uh you know so many people like took 
okay, yeah, Bob Moog made the synthesizer. Um, I, I can do this. I can make a synthesizer like that. Uh, but what Zinoviev did, if you look at the structure of the synthesizers that he made, I mean, they're really unique. They are not like, here's Bob's idea how I would do it. It's like, here's this concept how I would do it. And they're really incredibly unique. And it led me uh, to kind of say that's the great thing. One of the great things about this documentary is that uh, we're getting the story of the English designers, and I think there's been a real deficit talking about the great English synthesizers uh, when people talk about the history of synthesizers. So it's it's really exciting. But it was also interesting, you know, certainly David Cockerell's super important. Uh, and everyone talks about, you know, what a genius he was in these designs. And uh, again, I think it's, it's fantastic that we're talking about that sort of thing. Um, and I know, you know, a few synthesizer designers who really kind of explore their own concepts. But I think a lot of the, the genius these days is going into software, Yeah, which is sad for a hardware guy for me, like me. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the sense I get. But I mean, this story, and I think one of the great things about it is what Dave has done in the way that he's done it is that we're hearing the human story of these genius engineers and it's more about, you know, their endeavors and their experiences with the technology, which makes it interesting to a wide variety of people. Because if it was just talking about what engineers are usually so inclined to talk about, I think a lot of people would be like, oh, yeah, this is uh, great. But you know, anyway, um, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. And what's also quite interesting, when you think about, you know, many of these guys were working on instruments that were infinitely unaffordable. I mean, they just were, you know, they were they were way beyond the the, the 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 kind of affordability of most musicians. They were sort of going to the kind of super groups and the people who had a lot of money. And it's interesting, perhaps the the British side was perhaps a little more cost conscious because we're all skint over here, obviously, most of the time. And and the idea of these kind of much smaller, much less ambitious instruments that would just bring electronic n instruments into the wider. And I think that, you know, EDP, uh, Electronic Dream Pipe, were probably the first of those guys that were really trying to, you know, they were. I think they were talking about the Wasp uh, being around about two hundred pounds or just under two hundred pounds, whereas the, a Mini Moog would have been, you know, up seven or eight hundred pounds in the UK. So the idea of trying to bring this down, and it it very much ties in with uh, the narrative of the piece, and that's quite an interesting thing. And I suppose. Now, if you make something, you know, that the preconception is, unless, you know, maybe you're Schmidt or one of those kind of crazy inventors who just goes, I don't care, I'm just going to make it. It has to be scalable and it has to get to as many people as possible. And that's that puts a whole lot of different pressures and challenges onto the engineering team because they're all these kind of, right, you've done that and now it has to do this. And I guess it's the same with software too, Dave, because, I mean, you can make software do pretty much anything, but if it uses all the CPU of your computer and there's no, you know, the mouse can't move anymore, then it's kind of pointless. So there's this concept of optimization and all these things that perhaps weren't so much of a restraint back then. Yeah, and we're very heavily influenced, obviously, we're very heavily influenced by certain synths from the past, but in particular, having everything on one screen, instead of diving menus and menus and menus and menus. I did loads of stuff in the 90s with things like Roland Sound Canvas and stuff, and it was actually that whole menu-driven GS, NRPN, SysX, all that kind of stuff. That was the driving force behind the Fat Boy when we did that first controller. 
Actually, that was a really interesting angle on this, uh, as an aside. Uh, obviously, EDP. Now, Chris uh, Huggett's story is quite well documented because obviously he was EDP and then Oscar and then and there's Novation and Focusrite. And he's an undoubted genius. We know an awful lot, obviously, having done the Imposco, we know an awful lot about what went into the Oscar and the way he did certain things to extract the most out of the minimum co- minimal components was real genius, we think. Uh, but his story is quite well documented. So, But the enigma, when we did the Fat Boy a million years ago, I had a phone call from the other half of EDP, which was Adrian Wagner. And he asked, did you uh, make it black and yellow in homage to the Wasp? And we were, yep, absolutely. And he talked, we talked a lot about uh, at the time on the phone. And he told me a couple of things that had kind of gnawed at me for years and years and years, ever since, I mean, what, what are we going back to like 96 or something? And uh, so when I started this, it was like, ah, you know, is, for example, is Richard Wagner the great, great grandson of, uh, is Adrian Wagner the great, great grandson of Richard Wagner? You know, are all these kind of myths true? Because he dropped off of the face of the earth, a bit like Alan. So I approached him and he uh, just kind of came back saying, look, the problem I have is that every time I put my head above the parapet, somebody takes a pop at me and I'm knocking on and I'm not well at the minute. And But what was utterly brilliant is the guy who does the EDP section used to be the sales director who's directly connected to a really good friend of mine who's a musician and also a TV film director guy. Uh, So actually what happened was Fred went down to stay with Adrian and they talked about it. And so we got Adrian's story through through Fred, which for me was amazing. And all of that stems, you know, back to like 96 and just this little conversation that had kind of gnawed at me. And the fact we did something in black and yellow in homage to what I think was a remarkable British synthesizer. And again, you say about price point, I mean, I could just about afford a wasp back in the day. Uh, but I know loads of my friends who had them and as I understand it it was like uh, Dave Stewart the Eurythmics Dave Stewart's first synth so it went on to spawn this and we talk about it being this kind of punk the sort of punk synth really even though Adrian Wagner was really into his prog it somehow ended up being this nasty sounding you know Daniel Miller talks about that Uh, and Robert Rental and Thomas Lear and those guys who used it, you know, with these really aggressive sounding. And it's such a beautiful sounding. It, you know, it looks like a toy, but it's not. It's, it's a beautiful piece of kit, providing you can keep it working, of course. Yeah. Most of it's point-to-point wiring. So, you know, things like that have a habit of getting dry solder joints and falling apart. And, I just remember. But they can be fixed. I remember it being uh, very creaky. It's one of those things that, that, that creaky plastic. But uh, anyway, I, I mean... I thoroughly recommend you go and check this out. Uh, if you go to brightsparks.movie, uh, you can download the package now. I think it's fifteen ninety nine UK pounds. That's for the uh, full version in various different uh, video formats available and also uh, the full version of the album as a bundle. Uh, is that about nineteen ninety nine US dollars? Is that what you kind of, is that roughly what you aim yeah. for? Yeah. 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 So I thoroughly yeah. recommend that. If I just, uh, I should be able to just uh, throw the website up here and you can see. Oh, I'm just playing What's the movie. There we go. So Brightsparks.movie is the place to go where you've got uh, links to buy and uh, various other bits of information about it, including actually there's an album excerpt as well. Uh, is that sequential, Dean? Does that, is that tracks one to eight sequentially or was it? Um, almost. <laughs> I think we might, have, we might have juggled a couple around just for 
artistic artistic license but that's great i mean thank you ever so much for uh joining me i know it's been a sort of fairly mono monotopical sonic talk but i think it's worthy of uh of deeper exploration how we've had i was going to ask uh before we go obviously uh the the, the thing is you know now we're coming towards the end of the year whether uh, any of you have a synthesizer of the year because we've had an awful lot of this with the resurgence of analog there's been a lot more stuff coming out i wonder if you've got any uh any choice i know mark you've been looking at stuff i don't know dean whether you've uh, you've had the opportunity to keep up with the uh with what's been going on but with you being so busy and all that ah dominion one owner i'm so pleased that i found somebody else who's actually got one i reviewed that some time back and uh it blew my mind was it the same for you yeah it's great it's great yes yeah, it's, it's kind of the only only modern synth i've got actually right so it's a it's, it's a bit of a new world for me <laughs> having something with memories and something that you know that kind of behaves itself. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I really like it. Excellent. Oh, well, I'm very pleased to hear that. That's a, that's a mod one. And uh, I don't know, Dave Spears, uh, I'm guessing uh, you're, you're just buying old synths at the moment, so it's probably not so easy for you to decide. Is there anything that you've seen you think, actually, as a, new, as a modern synth from uh, perhaps this year, if we, can, if we can fit it in? I know it's hard to know exactly when a lot of these things come out because they were announced 10 years ago and then arrive 10 years later in many cases. It's uh, Prophet Six, I think, probably. Oh, that's interesting. I think for me, that that's it's one of the kind of analog, the redone analogs that just meets all the criteria. There's one thing that had always frustrated me with the Pro One and the Prophet Five and the Ten and stuff is this, you know, no uh, sample and hold LFO waveform, and it's just, you know, I, I kind of reach for it instead. Oh, 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 it's not there. So the fact that the six has got it and the effects and Mark's done some amazing videos on it. And that's kind of, there's a, there's a bit of gear lust going on over that for me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, you could always go for a desktop if you haven't got space. Cause I know space is limited. Yeah. There. I thought that was a brilliant idea actually really inspired. Yeah. I yeah. like that a lot. Okay, Mark, I'm over to you now. So uh, <laughs> it's your turn. Yeah. It's, it's hard for me. I mean, you can kind of tell what I was really into by what I demoed, because I always sort of pursue the things that I think are really cool. But yeah, I have to say the Prophet 6 has been just incredible. It really ticks all the boxes. Also, the analog solution stuff, the Nyborg, I, I'm just in love with it because the tone is amazing. And I really like the Korg Odyssey as well. But it's, it's hard to nail down exactly one for me short list to do fine of course uh, we are also <laughs> showing this uh, we have a uh, a little poll running on the uh, on the website so you can go and vote for your best synth of 2015 uh, and uh, we'll announce a winner um, at some point in the near future so anyway uh, that feels like a, a great place to end i want to say thank you very much to all my guests also thanks to our sponsors uh, obviously uvi and the falcon and also uh, isotope remember you can enter the competition if you want to win a copy of ozone 7 just tweet the hashtag super tweak and the hashtag ozone 7 to at sonic state and at isotope inc to enter the competition but I want to say thank you to all of you for joining us. I know because uh, last night was, I know, Dean, you've had to drive hot foot back from the premiere back up to home to uh, to get back. And I appreciate that. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. And as you say, there's... Uh, uh, thank you for having us. Releases coming soon if you want vinyl. And are you going to do uh, CDs? Yeah, vinyl and CD. Excellent. Both. Thank you very yeah. much. And also Mr. Mark Doty from the Bob Moe Foundation, th- uh, dot org. Thank you very much for joining us. Always nice to have you on. 
Um, yeah, and I just wanted to say something about the music associated with Riot Sparks. I think Dean and Jared, like, I have done so much work. Like, whenever I demo an analog synthesizer, I'm always going, okay, this is how to make this thing sound as deliciously analog as possible. And I think a lot of times people take analog synthesizers and they make the, the sounds really clean and sequence them and etc. But the thing I really like about this album is that you guys have really taken the characteristic, beautiful analog synths sounds of these vintage synths and really brought them into the forefront. It sounds so deliciously analog. And I think it's like, it's a really great example of what analog synthesizers should sound like. And then the songs are so catchy. So I just wanted to tell you guys that it's fantastic music and I love it. So that too. Thank you, Mark. Excellent. Well, that's a very uh, a, a great way to end uh, the show. And I want to say, uh, did I say goodbye to Dave yet? I don't think no. I have. Have I? Sorry. God, that gives me some time to find the uh, compilation that we so we can play out with the compilation of the uh, of the album itself. Um, thank you yeah. very much, Dave, for joining us and uh, for all your hard work with this. I'm sure uh, it will be a great success, and uh, you know you can sit back hopefully and. Enjoy the rest of the year without having to think about editing hours and hours of footage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've lived and I've slept it, actually. I've dreamt about it during the process. It's been a kind of all-consuming thing. But honestly, I, you know, I wouldn't have changed anything for the world. So really, thank you, Dean and Jared, for the opportunity. And Mark, wow, we had some amazing chats. And thank you ever so much to you, Michelle, and Herb, and everybody involved. It was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing experience really amazing so yeah i just hope everybody likes it oh god <laughs> well we are getting some questions in the chat room about uh is it just digital or is there going to be a dvd release what, or blu-ray of what's the uh yeah it's just digital we did a test on dvd but uh because it's two hours long it ended up we uh, honestly i just hated the quality i really hated it by the time it was kind of crunched down to dvd size even a double dvd we just looked at it on the tv and just went it looks horrible. No, you know, we live in the 21st century with a bit of luck. People can download. I mean, the files are large, which is why we've done three sizes. And so, you know, I'd recommend if anyone does purchase it, then you just download the small one and check it out and then go get the bigger one later, as it were. Yeah, well, that is a very good point because, I mean, DVDs, I guess Blu-ray would be the way to go if you were able to do that. But I don't know anything about Blu-ray mastering. And I guess physical copies become a lot more expensive on Blu-ray, if I'm right. And to duplicate them, it's a nightmare, isn't it? Well, it's interesting. I was talking with, you know, obviously Adrian Nutley, who contributed, and he's a complete film fanatic, as you know, and he said, you know, touring, he would go and find Blu-rays and DVDs and stuff and put them in his computer and play it. And he said, actually, it's becoming harder and they're becoming harder and harder to find because everything's kind of geared to a download. Also, it gives us, you know, if something needs a tweak, it gives me the opportunity to tweak. Not that I'm going to tweak anything. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, one last thing. Isotope RX saved my ass on about 100,000 occasions on this. When we started off, I mean, there's some, and it was really unfortunate when I started recording, say, Will Gregory right at the beginning, that was uh, on a camera mic. And in fact, there's some stuff where we were recording Ken using the Zoom H4, and uh, he's here and these birds fly past the window and we had the window open and stuff. But with RX, I was just able to go in and just lasso the little bird tweets and just remove them. Absolutely saved my bacon. Well, amen to that. Anyway, that's it. Thank you very much. I'm going to play out with uh, the, uh, as I fade to black, with uh, the excerpts from the album, which I thoroughly recommend you go and 
get forthwith. That's it. Thank you very much for listening. See you next time. Thank you.